Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone from Lancashire, he's our guest, playwright and screenwriter, Dara Carville. Then she says, I know you're an artist. Draw a picture of me. I said, I would if I could, but I don't draw sketches from memory. Well, she says, I'm right here in front of you, or haven't you looked? I said, all right, I know, but I don't have my drawing book. She gives me a napkin. She says, you can do it on that. I say, yes, I could, but I don't know where my pencil is at. She pulls one out from behind her ear. She says, all right, now, go ahead, draw me. I'm standing right here. I make a few lines and I show it to her to see. But she takes the napkin and throws it back and says, that don't look a thing like me. I said, oh, kind miss, it most certainly does. She says, you must be joking. I say, I wish I was. Fabulous. I love, I love Highlands. That's just, and I love, I don't know where my pencil is at. That's one of the few yeah. lines that made me laugh out loud in a Dylan song. Why did you, why did you choose that, Darren? Well, that's one of the reasons, really, because it makes me laugh. Uh, and I think Dylan's funniness is something that is often overlooked, just how funny he is as a, as a writer, his sort of comic timing which has been there really right from the beginning i mean it sort of it fades sometimes there are periods where the work is kind of darker but it's always lovely when that sense of humor comes back so i mean that little passage it does kind of a lot of the things that i most love in dylan it's got his amazing ear for dialogue uh that sort of vernacular hmm. language and it's got that kind of dramatic quality that his writing very often has that storytelling quality where we go in to a scene between two quite clearly defined characters having this kind of moment of engagement and drama and and conflict. Um, So I I loved all of that. It's something that I I really respond to in, in Dylan's work, but there's also a kind of personal reason for it. I was one of those people, I guess, like like you guys, who was with Dylan through the long, dark years of the 80s. Or, or I sort of became a fan of Dylan in the early 80s. And I was discovering the, you know, the riches, the treasure trove of the back catalogue at the same time as the new work that was coming out, the Empire Burlesques and, and so on, were so poor in, in comparison. Mm. And there was a sort of sense of him as an embarrassment. I mean, it's strange to think now, but there, there was. It was slightly embarrassing to be a Bob Dylan fan. Mm-hmm. And I always felt, I always knew that there was going to be a revival. I knew it, at some point the record will come out that everybody will go, wow, he's back, this is amazing. Because that had started to happen 
I mean, Dylan wasn't the only uh, artist of the 60s who had a difficult 80s. I mean, mm. it, it happened almost to everyone. Mm. But it had started towards the end of the 80s. There's a, a pattern had developed where artists who had been written off were coming back with great work. You know, it happened with Lou Reed. It happened with, with Neil Young. When we get into the 90s, it was happening with, you know, McCartney. And there was this kind of thing happening where uh, the new work would come along that would remind you of the glories of the of of the old work and there'd be a new chapter. And I kept waiting for that to happen with Dylan. Mm. And it sort of almost did with Oh Mercy. And there are great things on Oh Mercy. And obviously the the early 90s albums of folk songs have their admirers and there are things to love in those records. But it was really with Time Out of Mind and specifically, I think, with Highlands that I remember listening to it for the first time. And when it comes to that scene, and it's the last song on the, on the record, obviously, and when it comes to that scene between the narrator and the waitress, as you say, Kerry, it, it just made me laugh out loud. And I saw, there was an enormous sense of, of relief almost that the kind of alertness and intelligence of the Dylan of the 60s and 70s was suddenly back. Not Dark Yet as well on, on that record was was the other one that, I mean, at, at the time, I, mean, I must have been really annoying because I literally remember phoning people up and playing them these songs over the phone because I was so excited that uh, that this great artist was was back on form. It's so funny how we, we accept now that Time Out of Mind is this major work, and I think rightly. But I remember sitting at the same desk I'm sitting at now, listening to it for maybe the second or third time, just having it on while I was working and listening to the lines, I've been to London and I've been to gay Paris. I followed the river and I got to the sea and I thought, what is this <laughs> nonsense? <laughs> you know, it's, in a similar way that we were saying with Rufus Jones about some of the couplets in Murder Most Foul, things make your toes mm. curl. But now it's no problem at all. I mean, it doesn't sound trite at all. Absolutely. But also, there's a, this is a thing I'm interested in about Dylan. The fact that as fans, um, as people who love this work, you kind of have to take uh, the rough with the smooth. You know, you kind of, I think part of what many Dylan people love is the kind of lack of polish, the lack of finish, the kind of slightly rough quality of the work compared to you know a paul simon or someone whose whose work is much more polished Mm. and the unpredictability of his work and and the range of his work um and so it's kind of almost (laughs) it feels almost churlish of us to kind of pick out things that that don't work because Mm. the things that don't work are part of the roughness of of the whole sort of um the whole body of work um and there you know there are things in I mean, there are moments in the whole, across the career that just make me cringe. Mm. But because I'm in love with this work, um, I, I, that, that's part of the love in a strange way. And in the way that it is in an actual, you know, in a marriage, in, in, in a, when you're deeply in love with someone, mm. it's not that you're blind to the, the flaws. You kind of love those too. Mm. Um, and Dylan's very good on this, actually. In in his in his love songs, I was listening to Wedding Song yesterday, and it's the most complicated, mixed up message that song. I mean, it's very far from being a straightforward love song. It's oh, yeah. about kind of obsession and you know all of the kind of problems of a relationship. That's all in there. He's rarely kind of one 
you know, one clear note. I think he tests uh, everyone. Uh, he, he tests the waitress in, in Highlands, and he tests us by, I think, sometimes the, the doggerel that he throws in the middle of some otherwise beautiful and complex lyric could, could just be a test. I'm, I'm just going to throw this at you. Mm. You know, some really, what seems like really easy, shitty, you know, lazy writing. Well, that on, makes on, you cringe. What's that song but, on? Is it in Ain't Talking on Modern Times when he pronounces superfluous, superfluous? And you think <laughs> the effort you've gone to to pronounce that incorrectly, to make it scan that way, yeah. when you could quite easily just say it properly, but you just can, you can almost see the glint in his eye that says, go on, have a go at me, go on. And yeah, then, no, absolutely. And there is something obstinate um, about his personality that that really comes across where you kind of think i mean certainly in recent years when his voice has become this incredibly gravelly damaged thing and you just sometimes think god can you just clear your throat before you you, you know <laughs> before you sing the song can you just you know clear your throat and there's clearly this obstinacy in him this orneriness that refuses to do that and mm. um, that refuses to Please, there's a, you know that's always something with Dylan. He's never trying to to kind of win you over and make you like him in in the work. Absolutely. Well, in Highlands, going back to that, I remember the first time I heard heard it, and I heard the line, "You don't read women authors, do you?" Yeah. I, and then and then he he says, at least that's what I think I heard her say, because <laughs> you can't believe that that character in a song is is saying that. You don't read women authors, do you? That's certainly never been written in a, you know, in a song before. And no, I, I mean, you know, you can never take these these things literally with Dylan. But there's something so odd about that that it feels true to me. It feels that, to me like that encounter happened, or mm. some kind of encounter like that, and and that this was a question that was thrown at him, and that <laughs> sort of threw him in in the moment. Um, I was reading it an essay about what touches on this song, an essay by um, Aidan Day in that collection um, that Neil Corcoran edited. uh, It's called uh, Do You, Mr. Jones? And he sort of reads this encounter in the cafe Mm -hmm. in Highlands as as having a kind of, that there's a kind of almost sort of sexual menace to it, as if Mm -hmm. uh, the narrator is kind of, well, it sort of presents a vision of the narrator as kind of sleazy, which was never how I I saw it. For for me, this is connected to the the bigger theme of that record and the bigger theme of that song, which is about this aging narrator lost in the world, looking at young people and not being able to connect with them, but sort of envying them. And for me, that that's kind of there's something around that going on in this odd encounter. I, did, I, I never thought that, uh, you know, he was coming on to her or something. Oh, no, I, I think it's the opposite of that. I think it's, this, uh, you know, when, when he says, tell me what I want, and, and she says, you probably want hard-boiled eggs. Another line that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> because it seems to me that hard-boiled eggs are like, uh, you know, your, your balls have slipped. <laughs> Or something to do with sexual inadequacy, not you know, just something yeah. with aging again. Also, because it rhymes with long, white, shiny legs. True, yeah. true. But there's something about there's something about hard-boiled eggs. It's just the sound. It it sounds funny, no, no matter yeah. what you know. It's it's not a metaphor or anything. It's just I know that um, 
I think uh, the Marx Brothers used uh, hard-boiled eggs in a, as a punchline in, in, in a movie. I, I think they were calling down to room service, send me up a room. And uh, I, I know that they, they kept out ordering hard-boiled eggs. It was just, uh, maybe it was a vaudeville joke. I don't yeah. know. There's also the hard-boiled detective genre, you know, and there's this is mm. kind of, because it has this, that initial um, bit of that conversation has this sort of uh, movie movie dialogue kind of hard-boiled edge to it. And then it, mm. sort of, it keeps sort of tripping over itself as it gets awkward. And that thing you mentioned, Dara, about, you know, at least that's what I think I <laughs> say. Mm. There is a maybe another parallel universe in which that's not what she said. And the conversation goes on anyway. And yes. it was awkward enough in the first place. And now it's really awkward because she never even said that in the first place it's, it's there's room for it all i think no absolutely and, and the sort of film noirish quality of the dialogue there i think that's a really good point and it's clearly something that dylan's constantly drawn to but different kind of genres of storytelling there's um obviously there are a lot of i mean it's curious there are a lot of western songs in in his uh, in his canon mm. um and there are comedy songs and you know it, it you know, he does seem to be a writer who ranges across lots and lots of different genres. But film noir is certainly a big part of it. And it, all, it almost feels like in this in the last 20 years or so that his whole persona is becoming, you know, like a sort of Humphrey Bogart mm. quality, that sort of raspy voice and those narrowed eyes. His whole demeanour is becoming yeah. quite film noirish. And a riverboat gambler thrown in as well. Yeah. I mean, look at him in the video for something like Things Have Changed. You know, just the way he's kind of, his, his eyes are kind of, sort of slowly, uh, you know, his eyes were two slits, as, as the man himself said. You know, yes. he's just, he, look, he looks like he exists outside culture and he's kind of cocking a suspicious look at every single person he meets. Yeah, yeah. Um, that very distinctive sort of squint that's you know, it's, it's like Bogart and it's like you know I just like realized it's, bit, it's a bit like Vincent Price <laughs> yeah you know that yeah. the mustache yeah. you know mm. the, the early Vincent Price movies before he was a sort of a horror person mm. he was a kind of a a spivvy sort of guy in a, in a nice suit you know so but but untrustworthy yeah I mean there is this other oddly or, or paradoxically I guess one of the constants of Dylan is this process of reinvention and him becoming different characters, not in a self-consciously theatrical way like Bowie, but in a more in a more sort of organic way. The way you know the, the the character who sings the songs on Blonde on Blonde is a very different character from the one who is on Nashville Skyline, who's different again from Rolling Thunder, and who's very different from the the Riverboat Gambler character that we we have now. But you know they're all him, but it's it's constantly changing. Speaking of murder mysteries, what do you make of? I mean, I was listening to Dignity um, recently, mm. and I hadn't quite seen it until well, because I knew you were coming on, and the fact that you've written uh, the Bay, the ITV uh, series, and and it's a, a murder mystery uh, of a sort, anyway. And I thought Dignity, I, I keep forgetting that it's a murder mystery that somebody got murdered on New Year's Eve, and and it seems like the private eye on one level in the song is trying to track him down. But, and what do you, what do you make of the song? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the songs that I keep uh, going back to. And it, it, it is, it's a great storytelling song. Uh, it's a great genre piece, but it's also, it's wonderfully playful and abstract. So it never kind of, I mean, the difficulty with the storytelling song in some ways is that it can become, 
it can become a bit pat. I mean, this this rarely happens with Dylan's. I don't know if it happens with any Dylan's story songs, but with other story songs, it's kind of like once you've heard it once and you've heard this story go from beginning, middle to end and be resolved, you kind of feel, okay, I've got it now. I don't need to hear that song again. And the whole point of songs is that you need to hear them again, that that they are, uh, uh, you know, it's part of the, the program of, of songwriting is to make something that's infinitely repeatable. And with with something like Dignity, I can just constantly listen to that because it never really resolves. But at the same time, it's it's deeply satisfying. It's not like it's just he's making it up as, as, he, as he goes along and it doesn't go anywhere. Although he's perfectly capable of doing that too. And there are songs that are... I mean, in some ways, a dignity maybe is an example of this too. What you might call shaggy dog stories, you know, stories that don't really go anywhere. And yet you kind of love being on that that journey. And also, I, mean, I guess the narrator of dignity is kind of, there's a, a couple of layers there because he's not simply the narrator of the tale. He's almost narrating the narrator because when he says i met prince philip at the home of the blues <laughs> and he said he'd give me information if his name wasn't used well you've just named him <laughs> so it's, it's almost like he's a third party commenting on the action and how do you how are you abused by dignity or is it i mean the, the whole idea of, of what dignity is is also one of the things i think the song is about because it it does make you th- think mm. uh, that you can be abused by dignity i suppose prince philip you know could well, actually, it's funny because Prince Philip, of course, was always losing his dignity by saying some, you know, making some racist remark or, mm-hmm. you know, just actually cutting. Maybe that's, I've only just thought of this now, but Prince Philip would often cut through the royalty thing mm-hmm. and just become this, you know, this guy who grew up in this weird way and would say what he actually thought. And goes mm-hmm. to blues bars. <laughs> <laughs> who goes to the booth the, I mean I I don't I've never really thought of pr- that Prince Philip being that Prince Philip right okay. Okay. you know what I mean yeah uh, um, I mean cl- again clearly this is something Dylan does all the time is take uh, real life characters and put them in in songs and there is something delicious about the incongruity of a British royal being in the home of the blues but I, I don't know I, I'd always thought of like Prince Philip is you know that that prince is not is not a real prince. I guess I I thought of him as being like one of those Damon Runyon sort of characters that, yeah. that um, populate the world of uh, of this song. Mm-hmm. Actually, that that reminds me of um, I watched a bit of Masked and Anonymous the other day, just because oh, it's God, such a you. yeah. It's God, I know it. It's still a miserably awful, difficult movie to watch. But the character names are fabulous, aren't they? Uncle Sweetheart, Pagan Lace, Bobby Cupid. They're all names of uh, out of Dylan songs that, that he hasn't written. And I, yeah, I, I, I mean, he's, br- he's brilliant at that. Uh, the, the thing he's not brilliant at is uh, the kind of sustained character writing that is requ- required yeah. in, you know, in, in a yeah. screenplay. It's really interesting, actually, because uh, you know, I, this is the thing I'm fascinated by by uh, Dylan as storyteller and Dylan as as dramatist, I guess. And it's something that he constantly returns to and sort of wrestles with. And it's there from the beginning, from very early songs uh, that are story songs or dramatic songs. And it's there right through, it sort of ebbs and flows and comes into prominence at different um, times. And so it's clearly something he's fascinated by. We know he draws a lot on cinema. Mm-hmm. We know that he uses a lot of film dialogue in his uh, 
in his songs. And there are, you know, scrupulous scholars who will go and, and, and track down every every line of dialogue. So he's he's fascinated by drama and storytelling, particularly cinema. But then when he tries to actually do it, you know, when when it's not writing a song, but actually making a movie, whether it's Ronaldo and Clara or uh, Maston Anonymous, or even Hearts of Fire. I know he didn't write that, but God help us. Yeah. And, I mean, they, they, just, they just, they don't work at all. And I was really interested to come across the other day. I was, uh, you know, sort of reading around this and, um, I read an interview with Jack Levy, mm-hmm. who, mm-hmm. as you know, obviously collaborated with with Dylan on the songs for Desire. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what's interesting about Desire is that is a wholesale return of the the story song, which had sort of been missing for quite a while. I mean, there are story songs and blood on the tracks to some degree, but mm-hmm. a real kind of uh, wholehearted commitment to stories with beginning, middle and end comes back on Desire. And uh, Jack Levy literally says, Bob isn't very good at storytelling. Uh, I've got the quote here, actually. Let me, uh, let me just find it. Uh, he says, uh, give me a sec. Is it that he's uh, not interested in storytelling? He, no, it's me. That that would be more close. You know, linear stuff seems like it doesn't interest him. It's, it, it, it is very much that. This is, what, this is what Levy says. Bob is not really that good at telling stories, you know. He doesn't go from A to B to C to D. He's got a lot of good stuff in his songs, but they don't usually add up to a story. Once in a while they do. So that's what, uh, and that's uh, Levy being interviewed in 2004. But what he's talking about there is the reason why Dylan wanted to work with him, because he came from a playwriting mm-hmm. background, a theatre directing background, mm-hmm. and he worked with uh, McGuinn and the Birds as a, as a lyricist. Mm-hmm. And Dylan makes that odd decision to collaborate with another lyricist rather than a musician. Mm-hmm. But it's because of Levy's expertise with with story and with being able to, as he say, go from A to B to C to D, you know, to 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 do that kind of structural thinking. And it's something that, I mean, I think you're right. It's that, generally speaking, that isn't something that Dylan is interested in doing. He may not um, even be able to do it, I suspect, because I'm just reminded of, of the um, Elton John biography. I don't know if you've read it, but it's actually really good. The Elton John thing. Yeah. And uh, he talks about playing char- charades or charades oh, yes. with Bob Dylan. And he said, Bob can't do it. He can't do it. And in a way, that's what charades is, charades. It's says yeah. you tell a story in order to get your point across. And, well, yeah, yeah. no, I, I have I, I haven't read the the whole book, but I've read that that section. It's mm. it's fantastic. I love those little kind of insights into into what Bob Dylan is really like. <laughs> um, I once uh, met someone who knew Dylan when he when he was young. I, I met this uh, brilliant theatre person at a, a festival in Montreal, Linda Gaborio, she's called, and she had been in Greenwich Village. Uh, in the early days, and she knew Bob Dylan before he was famous. I mean, he may not have even been Bob Dylan. And she said to me, and I quote, Bob was weird. And, you know, that was before he was famous. He was already quite odd. Mm. And I think that's absolutely key to him. And every time I get a bit frustrated, you know, when you go and see him live, I've seen him a lot, and, you know, he'll, he'll do... I don't know, he'll just suddenly start playing the piano like Les Dawson or, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll just, you know, he'll, he'll just do something 
deeply strange. I'm always reminded, well, you know, that's just who Bob is. Bob is weird. And there's a story. Have you read Sam Shepard's book about uh, Ro- Rolling Thunder? Thunder? Oh, yeah. 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 There's, a, there's a moment in that where he talks about taking Dylan to see one of his plays, one of Shepard's plays. And, and Dylan starts talking from the audience to the characters on stage and saying, you know, oh, no, you can't do that. And, you know, so, and it's almost as if, and Shepard is writing it, and he's sort of kind of um, clearly quite embarrassed by this. You know, he's brought this guy along to see his play and he's sort of disrupting it and being acting very strangely as if he's never seen a play before. But whether, you know, the question of whether he can tell a story of the beginning, middle and end, you know, he, he does that in the early days on those first records. I mean, a, a, a song like mm. Harry Carroll uh, is a brilliant, brilliant sustained piece of storytelling. And it really does go from, you know, it has a beginning, a middle mm. and end. I mean, to quote uh, Goddard, not necessarily in that order, yeah. um, but it has all of the elements. It's a perfect, perfect piece of of storytelling. Mm. Um, I mean, it's interesting in that it's not chronological. It doesn't, it isn't beginning, middle, end. It starts with William Zang Singer killed poor Hattie Carroll. So it starts with, in the work of a more conventional writer, that might have been the end point. And they, you know, they may have told the story of that evening chronologically. Mm. Dylan doesn't do that. He starts with the murder, then the arrest. Then he flips back to describe what Hattie Carroll herself was like so it's almost we go into a kind of flashback. So we start in the middle, we then go to the beginning, and then we come to the end. And the end of the song, of course, is not the murder, but is the sentence. Mm. And that's the point of the song is the injustice of the, the sentence that Zantinger gets. Uh, and from so his he's, point he's of view. perfectly capable of doing that incredibly concentrated kind of uh, storytelling. And there are other, you know, there are numerous other songs early on, mostly true stories, mostly with the civil rights theme, uh, you know, Hollis Brown and so on. Mm. And then he sort of turns against that. And there's that famous story of the the argument he had with Phil Ox, where he plays him, uh, can you please crawl out your window? And Phil Ox doesn't, doesn't like it and they have a row and uh, Dylan ends up chucking him out of his taxi. You know this story? Yes. And he yeah. says, uh, Dylan's quoted as saying to Phil Ox, you're not a folk singer, you're just a journalist. And the idea of being a journalist, in spite of the fact that Dylan himself had written those very journalistic, you know, true story songs early, early on, mm. the idea of just being a journalist and just writing about kind of real life is seen as a, uh, a lesser thing. I mean, the, the, just going back to Hattie Carroll, the interesting thing about that as well is a, just a little bit of research reveals that it's really not an accurate depiction of what happened. I mean, from the off, he's not called Zanzinger, he's called Zantzinger. The right. whole thing is Dylan's version of what happened. And he has an objective, which is to tell a story. And, it, and it, when it overlaps with fact, great, but that needn't be the be all and end all. Um, yeah, and and I mean, you can say absolutely the same thing for for Hurricane, which comes yeah. then, you know, ten years later, and is the fruit of that collaboration with Levy. And like Harry Carroll, it's just an absolutely extraordinary piece of of songwriting. Yeah. Um, but again, not necessarily accurate 
you know, as no. as we know, in fact, they they had to recut the the, the song because uh, some of it was considered to be sort of libelously wide of the mark. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And then there's Joey on that record too, which is uh, a sort of pay-in to uh, well, they're all. I mean, uh, New York mobster. Going back to what you were saying, they, I mean, I think Joey, Hurricane, Isis, Black Diamond Bay are all pretty mm. linear story songs. Now I have no idea how much of that is Dylan and how much of that is is Levy, but you know, I mean, I it's it's been said before, but I'll, I'll quote it again: the beginning of Hurricane. If you if you just take the text and retype it into a screenplay format, it reads: mm. pistol shots ring out in a barroom. Full stop. Night. Full stop. Enter capital letters Paddy Valentine from the upper hall. She sees a capital letters bartender in a pool of blood. Cries out. Then her line is, "My God, they killed them all." You, you, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't write that more specifically if you tried. And that may well be Levy. But yeah, I, I I suspect quite a lot of that is Levy. And just from watching that interview with him, it's up on YouTube. I think quite a lot of ISIS mm-hmm. as well as well is. Um, which I sort of found in an odd way faintly disappointing because he talks about, you know, I love the rhyme of um, outrageous and what, what's <laughs> contagious, <laughs> outrageous yeah. and contagious. Yeah. yeah. And he, he actually <laughs> makes a point of saying how much Dylan loved mm-hmm. that rhyme. Uh, so that was actually Levy who, who wrote that. No, I mean, the, those songs, as I say, they have, um, and Black at Diamond Bay, Absolutely, you know, it has a kind of a, a, a real conclusion, a real kind of turning point at, at the end. Those songs are very much structured as as stories, and it's really interesting to see him come back to that because, as I say, with the, that Phil Ox moment, he had very clearly turned away from linear storytelling uh, storytelling mm-hmm. in his in his songwriting. So it's very interesting to see that come back. But there are other kinds of storytelling, obviously, that he he was also doing. So, you know, around the same time as Hattie Carroll and that incredibly journalistic, crisp piece of reportage, you know, kind of story torn from the headlines, he's also writing Bob Dylan's 115th Dream, just sort of mm. madcap comedy song, and yet with a kind of, uh, you know, it's not just a comedy song. It's not just meant to make you laugh a lot. Mm. It's, it's, very, it's very funny. There is a, there's something... Um, complicated and, and playful going on there and those kinds of songs continue and on john wesley harding he's he's it's, it's full of story songs but they're they're very much the shaggy dog story of the kind of parable they're not they're not beginning middle and end kind of narratives they are they're stranger than that i, yeah. I always sort of feel with john wesley harding that that's the record where he's going in a very creative way, he's going, I don't have the answers. Mm. Uh, because obviously, as we know, he was at that time seen as this extraordinary guru and spokesman of a generation and all of that and all of that stuff that he was trying to escape. And I think John Wesley Harding is a first attempt to say, no, I don't have, <laughs> that's <laughs> not me. I don't have the answers. And and then when that didn't quite work, when actually people started to read into that record <laughs> even more and sort of see the faces of the Beatles on the cover and all of that kind of stuff, then he goes, all right, I'm, you know, and turns around and makes self-portrait as a, as really an attempt to kind of shake off those, those kind of obsessives. I guess even when he's deliberately and willfully not telling a story, he still is. I mean, I think of two, two things, one clothesline yeah. saga, which is, I mean, it's a parody of Ode to Billy Joe, and it's quite clearly a story, yeah. but it willfully ends on Ma met me, and I, when I, sh- I went inside and I shut all the doors. But it's delivered with such a kind of 
deliberate sense of conclusion that it sounds like an ending, even though it's not. And the other yeah. thing is I was watching a, there's a 90 minute uh, Joni Mitchell documentary on YouTube, which I, I watched over the weekend. And she said the thing that attracted her to Dylan was the storytelling aspect in his work. And then went on to talk about Positively Fourth Street. And I thought, well, that's not really a storytelling song. But then again, mm. I guess the point is, is that even when he's not telling a story, he is. Well, I love I love Clothesline Saga too. Sorry, just to say that my favorite yeah. lines in that are, because right in the middle of this, I think it's kind of a non-story Clothesline Saga. Really, it's yeah. just hanging clothes on the line. But then in the middle of it all, it's, the vice president's gone mad. Where? <laughs> Downtown. When? Last night. Oh, say, that's too bad. Mm. That's a story in the middle of this thing yeah. about clothes not drying. Yeah, yeah. No, and absolutely. I love that too. It's another way of, of telling stories. Yeah, I think he is. I mean, I don't think he would ever think of himself as doing this, but he is deconstructing uh, storytelling in a song like, like that. And I think that's happening across... Um, John Wesley Harding and, and lots of other places where he is he's taking apart the traditional structure of of story mm. so that a song can feel like a, a story while not adding up to to being that kind of satisfying linear narrative. And he's doing it very, very deliberately. Michael Gray writes about Dylan's use of dramatic monologue and he compares him to, to Robert Browning. Um, and I think there's, there's something in that. Uh, there are a lot of those songs, while they're not necessarily telling a story, they are creating a drama mm. in that mm. they're voiced from the perspective of a distinctive character and they're voiced to another distinctive character. So there is a kind of dramatic dialogue and, or an implied uh, dialogue going on in something like Positively Fourth Street. Mm. And, and yeah, and then there are other... There are other moments just in, in songs that are not stories where suddenly you'll just get a vivid little passage of story, you know, like a little kind of fragment or, or shard, like in Idiot Wind, they say I shot a man named Grey. That, mm-hmm. that, that little section is just a brilliant, funny, uh, clever little story that's told within about four lines and then, this, mm-hmm. then the song goes on. And does lots of other things, and that's that's something that happens a lot in in Dylan as well. Well, the the elephant in the room, I think, is uh, Brownsville. Yes, as we yeah. mentioned, Sam Shepard, and talk about a a story. What do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that collaboration between Shepard and and Dylan uh, is is really extraordinary. I, I mean, I'd be very interested to know, and I don't suppose there's any way we will know. Uh, who wrote what on that on that song? I mean, who wrote the line? If there's an original thought out there, I could use it right now. Uh, uh, you know, wh- whichever of them did, it's absolutely extraordinary. Um, I mean, that it's a wonderful. It's, I mean, it's one of my favorite songs. Not just Dylan songs, but songs full stop. And it does feel like a story. It feels like an epic movie and it's obviously also reflecting on on movies and and it's kind of spinning off from the the Gregory Peck film the gunfighter but it would be hard to t- it would be hard to paraphrase what that story is there was talk i don't know if you remember there was talk a couple of years ago that they were going to make a, a film of it this this it, it was in the papers and it said um the one piece of uh, concrete information in the reports was that Brad Pitt was going to play Henry Porter. <laughs> the only oh, thing we know about yeah. Henry Porter is that his name wasn't Henry Porter. Yeah. 
I think if you made a film of Brownsville Girl, you would end up with something very much like Masked and Anonymous or Ronaldo and Clara, as in a complete mess. But as a song, it is just uh, superlative. Well, you know, it should be a complete mess because, you know, if you had Brad Pitt and a linear storyline, it wouldn't be Brownsville Girl. It would absolutely kill it. it would, yeah. yeah it, but also, it would be... when, you, when you hear a, a song that's infused with this sort of cinematic quality, some of the money men somewhere are thinking, hey, we'll make this into a film. You know what? Just leave it as a cinematic-esque song. I mean, Highway Patrolman by Bruce Springsteen from Nebraska was turned into a, a film. Um, is it The Indian Runner? Um, and it's a short yeah. film. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And you think, well, look, I love that song and it's a really good film, but, but you, that's, that's unnecessary. It really yeah. is unnecessary. Leave it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Step yeah. away from the song. <laughs> Do you have I, any I was, thoughts, Dara, on the differences between Brownsville Girl and New Danville Girl, or are we getting a little bit too geeky there? No, God, I, it's not possible to get too geeky. <laughs> <laughs> You're among friends. I'll have to put on, that on the website. On this stuff. Um, I prefer Brown, Brownsville Girl. Uh, I, you know, really? I, there, there, there's much to love in, in the original, but I think... Between the recordings, much is gained. And, and my understanding is, is that the work that went on after the recording of the first version, uh, between the recording of the first version and the second, was, was, was largely Dylan. Mm. Um, I don't think that was continued collaboration with Sam Shepard. Um, so it would be interesting to actually just compare, the, compare those, those lyrics because that, that may well show us um, how much of that is, is Bob. I mean, I, I love I love both, but the, the finished version, the final released version, the fantastic interplay with the backing singers, the the, the sense of real drama, but not just in the lyrics, but in the in the music. Uh, and again, Michael Gray has written brilliantly about this: the way the song is half sung and half spoken, mm. and within a single line, he can shift between singing and speaking. It's it's extraordinary. By the way, just as a, a teeny little addendum, I don't spend much time on expecting rain, but I did uh, have a bit of time on my hands. So I looked up uh, a Brownsville Girl on expecting rain, and somebody had uh, written in to say that they'd been watching an episode of Rawhide, the Clint Eastwood TV series that he made before he was a big star, and there was a character named Henry Porter in it. <laughs> ah. And the big thing was... Who was he? Because the only thing they knew about him was that his name wasn't Henry Porter. Now, I don't know if that's true, but somebody wrote that on Expecting Rain. So I wouldn't be a tall surprise. That no, no, yeah, no, no. I wouldn't be a tall surprise if that was true. I did love the bit. You, you presumably have seen the bit where Gregory Peck pays tribute to Bob by quoting the song. Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, my God. It's on YouTube. Oh, it's, oh I must check it's that out. Right? It's a Kennedy Center award ceremony for Bob. Bob is sitting there next to the Clintons, and he's got this ribbon around his his neck. And Gregory Peck comes out and quotes the first, uh, you know, eight, eight lines. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, Brunswick, and, and Dylan appears to be weeping. His, 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 his eyes soften. It's, it's quite a long shot. But and at the end he he nods and does a little not namaste but does a little sort of thing to Gregory Peck and it's like yeah. his dreams have come true. Gregory yeah, Peck is quoting him. Yeah, to yeah. Himself. because there is an interview uh, early seventies I think I can't remember where where it is or where I read it but he's talking about Gregory Peck. I think he says in that interview I would see him in anything, which is then the, you yeah. know the, the lyric that comes back yeah. in. 
in the song. But yeah, I wouldn't, the, the rawhide thing, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was the case because we know he's got form there mm. of, of, of pinching stuff. And I actually, the other day, I'd never seen the movie Shane before. Mm-hmm. And uh, my son, Dan, is, uh, who's 17, and he's going through a kind of Western phase, mm. I think largely dictated by, uh, there's a computer game called Red Dead Redemption. I don't know if uh, <laughs> you guys are familiar with that. Mm-hmm. That has a kind of Western uh, setting. And it set him off on a trip through the history of the Western. He's really into Clint Eastwood and stuff. Anyway, we watched um, Shane. Mm. And there's that line uh, about, I don't mind leaving. I just want it to be my idea, yeah. which uh, yeah. Dylan picks up in, I can't remember which song it is, Sweetheart Like You or something something like that. So he does, we know he does this. Mm-hmm. He, he pulls lines out of movies. And that, I mean, this is another thing that I'm really interested in, which is Dylan's dialogue. You know, because we talked so much and so much has been written about Dylan as poet and whether he is a poet and whether the words work on the page uh, uh, separate from the music. But this kind of idea of of Dylan as a dramatist or Dylan as a storyteller seems much less um, explored. And for me, it's really key to him because one of the things he's so good at, he's just got an extraordinary ear for spoken language and it goes right through the songs. And it's also one of the reasons that reading interviews with him is such a pleasure because the sort of cadences of his, of his spoken language is, you know, it's very close to, uh, to his lyrics. Uh, it was one of the pleasures as well of the, of the radio shows, just mm. hearing him talk and just, just, uh, for me, at least it was kind of an intense pleasure in just the way he, he uses language. And so I always love when he, when within a song, there are fragments of dialogue and it's something he does a lot i would say you know it's quite unusual i would i would have thought in a songwriter mm. and you get these kind of wonderfully vivid moments i mean i'm thinking in particular of something like isis where you've got that fantastic sort of crescendo and again obviously mm. we don't know how much of this was bob how much of this was was jack levy but i this feels like dylan to me that the, the last verse or the second last verse where goes she said where you been i said no place special she said you look different i said well i guess she said you've been gone i said that's only natural she said you're gonna stay i said if you want me to yes (laughs) that that yes uh which just takes off in the song is so thrilling and uh i was thinking about that and i had a look on in the in the big book of bob dylan lyrics and very frustratingly, that is entirely rewritten in the, in the published lyrics, and it's much less it's much less interesting. Mm. What do they do? What do they do with it? Uh, hang on, give give me a second. I'll just I'll just grab it because I yeah. Because they me do a, that on the website as it's well. It's often don't the they? case. Yeah, the, 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 the officially published lyrics are are very often not nearly as interesting as what he sings. I, I always wonder if that's a mistake, you know, somebody well, think, in the Dylan office being lazy no, or, or think, uh, you, has Bob done it? No, because mm-hmm. you copyright the lyrics, presumably at a different time from recording them. And he doesn't, they don't want to go back and re-copyright the different set of lyrics, maybe. I don't know. It's very strange. Um, so in the published lyrics, it goes, the first line's the same. She said, where you being? I said, no place special. She said, you look different. I said, not quite. Not quite? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. like an English vicar. So much less interesting than, well, I guess. <laughs> huh. 
She said, you've been gone. I said, that's only natural. She said, you're going to stay. I said, yeah, I just might. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's far more like Highlands, isn't it? That kind of, you know, shrugging kind of, hmm, maybe, well, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so much less thrilling than the, if you want me to, yes. Yeah. I'll tell, I'll tell you I'm, one bit of dialogue that um, I'm, I'm always confused by, even though I think it's a great song, which is uh, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. <laughs> yeah. Because it seems to me, and now maybe they're supposed to be two halves of the same person, but they, they sound, they talk in the same way, it seems to me. Or I, I, I always think, oh, oh, it's Frankie Lee. He's the gambler whose father is deceased, and Judas Priest. But I always get them confused because I think there's something about the syntax about when mm. whoever it is leaves. I, I'm totally confused whether it's Frankie Lee or Judas Priest. Mm, and whichever yeah. it, of w- one of them dies, I'm always confused which of them is, has died. And I, yeah. I in I'm, that, I'm sure if it, you're but, confused by any song on John Wesley Harding, it's entirely deliberate. Yeah, it is, but I'm I'm because uh, he could, I think, have have made the characters more, uh, more different, distinctive, yeah. more distinctive. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think he. I mean, I think Lucas is right. It's it's it it is deliberate, but it's deliberately frustrating. Yeah, uh, and I think it is that thing of not wanting to, um, to to present a finished story. I mean, that that song in particular really is a Shaggy Dog story. It doesn't really go anywhere. But it's wonderful. I mean, I absolutely, I absolutely adore it. Well, nothing is revealed, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. noticed the yeah. similarity between um, Romance and Durango and, and El Paso by Marty Robbins? Oh, no, that, I haven't. Give that a listen, because there's a clear yeah. influence there. And that, again, is a very shaggy dog story with a, with a great Western motif, mm. you know, right down to having the narrator die. And, 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 and I mean, it's just great stuff. It's a fantastic song, but there's a clear influence there, too. I, I, yeah, I'll check that out. I, um, I mean, other just little glimpses of dialogue, even in the new record, there's a, I mean, this is a, a, it's a, it's a minor thing, but it's lovely in Goodbye Jimmy Reed towards the end when it goes, God be with you, brother dear, if you don't mind me asking what brings you here. Just the kind of bounce of that mm. language is just fantastic. Someone said, uh, apparently someone has detected that God be with you, brother dear, comes from a Moliere play. I don't oh, know if yeah. it, you know, some some of this may just be coincidence. Going back to where we started and talking about that waitress scene in in Highlands, what, mm. one of the other things that I loved about that was it shows that he was still listening, that he was still alert. He had his ear to the ground at that time because the kind of language this that, that, that character, the waitress, does feel like a contemporary young woman. And that there's, there's something that feels sort of crisp and real about that encounter, and you know, on um, together through life, which you know, it's it's not a record I I love, just because I I, I I find it sort of saturated in that accordion, um, and I sort of uh, it, it it just feels swamped with that. But that song, it's all good. I I remember loving. Not loving the song necessarily, but just loving the idea that he is writing a song about that very contemporary phrase mm. that you know we hear all the time, mm. and that he does wonderful ironic things with, and just again that sense that he's still got his ear to the ground, he's still he's still listening, he's still attuned to the kind of rhythms of vernacular demotic language. I think is something that's um, uh, a pleasure. Is It Rolling Bob, Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, stuck inside Immobile. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith 
and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at IsItRollingPod. Try to be pure at heart. They arrest you for robbery. Mistake your shyness for aloofness, your silence for snobbery. Got the message this morning, the one that was sent to me, about the madness of becoming what one was never meant to be. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash when your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow. Just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Apply a little splash when your windshield's getting dirty. Just apply a little splash. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.